Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So we're joined today by Mark Ronan, who's Honorary Professor of Mathematics at University College London, but who also has a special interest in ancient languages. And he's written an article in our January edition called The Puzzle of Proto-Elamite, which describes new efforts at the Ashmolean Museum, Oxford, to decode what is considered to be the world's oldest undeciphered language. And that's Proto-Elamite. What is Proto-Elamite, Mark? Oh, Proto-Elamite, uh, well, it's a funny, it's a funny uh, name for the language. There's an area in southwestern Iran, which is now Khuzestan province, um, where there, was a, there were people called the Elamites. Now, the Elamites, um, we don't really know about them officially until about 2500 BC. This language, whatever it was, and it may not be Elamite, was written earlier than that. It was written about 3000 BC. And, and, it's, and it's currently uh, being investigated by a team at the Ashmolean Museum, uh, which is led by Jacob Dahl of Walsham College. Yes, Jacob Dahl has been working on this puzzle of proto-Elamite for a long time. I think he started looking at it when he was doing his PhD work at UCLA. And um, he... The first thing you need, really is, you see, let me just explain. What happens with these ancient tablets is that somebody reads them and then they transcribe them onto paper by drawing lines on paper. And these you know. are in cuneiform, these tablets? Well, this is not cuneiform. Mm. This is something pre-cuneiform. But there was pre-cuneiform stuff being written in Mesopotamia as well. And the pre-cuneiform stuff in Mesopotamia is called proto-cuneiform. This is called proto-elamite, but it's really a bit of a misnomer because there wasn't a special elamite writing system. They adopted cuneiform, but it's, it's, it's perhaps a bad choice of things. But it's all very well. You read these things in books where somebody has written down on paper what they saw on the tablet. And the trouble is that very often, and I've found this working on these things myself, you find that whoever did the transcription onto paper got it wrong. I mean, he assumed that this, symbol, that this was the symbol, and he transcribed it as that symbol, more or less. And actually, it's a mistake. It's not that symbol. It's a different symbol. So what they've done... Uh, using this um, sort of dome that they put tablets under and it flashes light onto the, onto the tablet, is to get the original tablets 
so that what scholars will be able to look at, scholars or anybody else who wants to try and do, do the decoding, they'll be able to look at a brilliant, brilliant image of the actual tablet rather than somebody's version of what thinks is on it. Right, and this is um, a new technique. This is called reflectance imaging technology. Reflectance right? imaging technology, yes, yes. Well, I mean, it's fantastic, really, isn't it? When you, you see, what happened with elamite, or this proto-elamite, is there was a chap who worked on this a long time ago, and he made a complete list of signs mm. that he saw. Because after all, you've got to have a complete list of signs in order to try and figure out what they all mean. The trouble was he also included signs from a different script called linear elamite, mm. which may be a completely different language. We don't know. I mean, according to Jacob Dahl, linear elamite and proto-elamite have about as much in common in their scripts as they do with the Shang oracle bones in China. I mean, if you take any two scripts, you're bound to find some sort of things that are, that are similar. Um, and so that was already confusing. Moreover, some of the signs were recorded as being different when they were in fact the same, and vice versa. And it, the problem is also compounded by what appears to be rather poor work by the scribes who wrote this stuff originally. They don't seem to have been very well-trained scribes. Jacob Dahl says it's very unsatisfactory what they would do. He even wonders whether this isn't a late stage in the language because there's nothing following it and we're sort of somehow missing the early stuff when there were real experts writing this. And presumably the key to decoding a language such as Proto-Elamite, as, as, as far as one can decode it, is in its relationship with other languages of yeah. that period and that region. Yes, you've got two problems here. One is to sort of decode the thing in terms of the writing system and see what the different signs mean. Some of them we know what they mean because some of them are numbers. And I should just explain that numbers don't necessarily mean just a number. Different, depending on what you're counting, they had different symbols for the numbers. But the, the numerical system is the same as we have already been used to in Mesopotamia. So that's easy. There are one or two signs for things we, we say, well, this is the same sign as they used in Mesopotamia. It probably means the same animal, a sheep, for example, um, almost certainly. Um, and what's, at, what's yeah. the Elamite relationship to Mesopotamia? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you see, Mesopotamia had two languages that were probably spoken in 3000 BC. One was Sumerian and the other was Akkadian. I say probably because we don't have any written Akkadian until about 2350 BC. Um, uh, under the reign of the great king Sargon, Sargon the Great, one of the, the great great kings of Mesopotamia. But um, Sumerian was certainly written in a form where we are sure it's Sumerian, shortly after 3000 BC. But the very earliest stuff, we can't be absolutely certain it was Sumerian because there's no sort of grammatical stuff that would lead us to be sure that this is that this is Sumerian. It's, it's a bit tricky. And Sumerian and Akkadian were spoken at the same time? They were spoken at the same time. So people would have been bilingual, we imagine. Mm. And that went on until about 2000 BC when Sumerian died out as a spoken language. It was still used as a written language 
And the reason you know that it wasn't spoken is that there, there wasn't a sort of development of the language going on. Right. And also that various fi- um, sort of frozen forms were used by Akkadian scribes. And Akkadian scribes would occasionally write things in Sumerian, just the same as we write, might write something in Latin, and get it wrong. Right. So, you know, you sort of know that they're not actually speaking the language. So is it certain that it is related to Sumerian and Akkadian, or are there other possibilities? There are other possibilities. I mean, this is in southwestern Iran, as I said, uh, where Elamite was the language that was certainly used later on, 500 years later. Um, and that very early Elamite called Old Elamite. There are very few texts. It's not well understood. We don't really understand Elamite until much later, the sort of Middle Elamite period, where then in after 2000 BC, um, well after actually, and uh, then later on into the Achaemenid period when the Persians were, were dominating And this is the, the empire that's destroyed by Alexander the Great. Or... That's right, that's right. And they used Elamite as well. Though their language, of course, was Persian. But the old Persian didn't have a writing system at that time. They developed this sort of cuneiform writing that they used for some big inscriptions. Um, But uh, that they simply used cuneiform because it already existed. Um, And it was used for Elamite. But um, this could be though it's extremely unlikely, I would say, to be an Indo-European language. If it were Indo-European, it would predate the earliest Hittite by, I don't know, 1,500 years. And when we say Hittite, that's currently the oldest in in known Indo-European language. Yeah, the the oldest written one is Hittite. Where was that spoken? Linear B was pretty early too uh, in Crete which was a form of, used for a form of Greek. Um, Hittite was spoken, well, it was basically in Turkey. Okay. You know, they had a capital, Hattushish, in, 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 in Turkey, and uh, I've been to see it. It's a marvellous, great place. And when did that die out? Um, well, there were Hittites around in, um, or the Bible talks about his wife was a Hittite or something, but that's a different sort of Hittite. The thing... Those languages related to Hittite carried on for quite a while, but they weren't necessarily written in cuneiform. I mean, it's called the Anatolian subgroup of Indo-European, which contains Hittite and a number of other languages, and they probably were still spoken in the time of Alexander the Great, some of those languages. Mm. And there's also another theory about it being related to Dravidian. Ah, now this is, yes, this is Elamite. You see, there are basically four choices, well, five choices. One is that this proto-Elamite is recording a language related to Sumerian. That's possible. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to me to be very likely, because if that were true, then since Sumerian already had its writing system, why didn't they use that? That... That would be my question. It might be a Semitic language, which Akkadian is. Um, That's possible. It might be an Indo-European language. I'm sure the Iranians would love that because they speak an Indo-European language, Persian, and uh, uh, they would perhaps not be so wild about it being a Semitic language. Um, But Semitic is 
would it, in a sense, be more likely because it was written much earlier, the Semitic languages, as I say, 23, middle of the, almost middle of the uh, third millennium. Mm-hmm. So if you were a betting man, yeah. uh, which one would you pick? <laughs> well, yes, uh, maybe I should pop into Ladbrokes and ask me what they'd <laughs> offer. I bet they don't have any odds on it. I suppose I'd be inclined to think of Elamite since right. okay. that's the area, that's what was spoken later on in that area. And this yeah. is a fascinating field, this, this whole study of ancient Middle Eastern languages that most people know nothing of. Right. Um, and it's interesting that you're a mathematician mm. by training. There mm. is, we've, we've used the phrase several times, decoding. Yes. I mean, is it, is it a field that's particularly rich for, for mathematicians? I don't think it's rich for mathematicians, but the thing mathematicians like, and they have to get used to, is seeing very strange symbols on paper and wondering what on earth it all means. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager learning, you know, calculus on my own when I was at school, and you see these strange symbols, you know. These, do you remember these curly Ds in calculus, partial derivative? What integral signs? What do these things mean? You want to know. And so it's that desire to know which inspired me to want to uh, learn cuneiform. But cuneiform is just a writing system, so you can't just learn cuneiform. You've got to learn a language that's written in cuneiform, and the one to start with really is Akkadian. And the one thing that people always want to know about this is what it sounds like, of course. We know what it looks like. Yes. Elamite and Proto-Elamite, we don't know, do we? We probably never will know how it was spoken. Is that true? Well, Elamite, I don't know. I mean, very difficult. I mean, because Elamite was written in cuneiform and it was written using the, the 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 syllables and so on that Akkadian used so one wouldn't know with Elamite for example whether it had doubled consonants at the beginning of a word mm. like we like if we say drink dr at the beginning you know and Akkadian didn't have that so you know how would they have written that mm-hmm. using the Akkadian system one isn't quite sure. So it's very difficult to suss it out. But uh, we, but we yeah. do know what Akkadian says. Akkadian we, we know best. Sumerian we don't know so well because it might have had tones that we are unaware of. Uh, but Akkadian we have a much better idea. And um, you're going to read but, something? Well, I'll read you a little bit. Which, I mean, is, I just, which is from where? The, well, this is... Um, we, we just decided on this before, before talking here. Ishtar's descent to the netherworld. Um... And uh, Ishtar was was a goddess. Um, she was an Akkadian goddess, a Babylonian goddess, um, Assyrian and Babylonian. A- Assyrian and Babylonian were both uh, dialects of Akkadian. And um, the Sumerian goddess was Inanna. And this is was originally an, a, a Sumerian story, Inanna's descent. Well, I'll just try reading this. Um, I don't think we've got the word uh, uh, Ishtar here, I'm afraid, but uh, Anakonugi Kakari Latari Ishtamarat Sin Uzunsha Ishkun Ishkunma Marat Sin Uzunsha Anabiti Ete Shubat Iakala Anabiti Sha Eripus Shu La Atsu I'll stop there. Can um, you give us a rough translation? Well, yes, a rough translation. Actually, what is very interesting, well, what it says 
in, in this translation that I've, I've, I've got, we printed this off the internet, uh, to the netherworld, land of no return, Ishtar, oh, sorry, there was Ishtar right there at the beginning of line two, Ishtar, daughter of Sin, set her mind. Sin is the moon, by the way. Um, the daughter of Sin did set her mind to the gloomy house, the seat of the netherworld, to the house that none leaves who enters. And one other word here that's worth pointing out, apart from Ishtar and Sin, um, is Kurnugi. Kurnugi is a, uh, a Sumerian word. Uh, it literally has three parts to it. Sumerian was a sort of monosyllabic language. Uh, Kurnugi. The Kur meant land. The and, and it meant land in the sense of land, could mean land far away, you know, and it could also mean mountains, by the way. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, nu means not, and uh, gi means return. And so it's land of no return. Um, the core for the Sumerians, um, one of my colleagues believes that this really was their netherworld, wasn't a netherworld, it was in the mountains. That's where you went when you died. Um, but this, of course, is Akkadian. It's not the Sumerian original, this is an Akkadian version. And perhaps for them, you know, it was a, a place below a it's sort of netherworld. It's very difficult, very difficult to suss these things out. We really don't have a very good understanding of their cosmology um, at this point. But um, anyway, there we are. Um, so that's what Akkadian sounds like. And, you know, we understand it because of Semitic language. And we, that was really how the decipherment was originally done. You know, decipherment of cuneiform... Well, it was done um, with these inscriptions, first of all, um, in Old Persian, but then quickly it was figured out that uh, Akkadian, what we now call Akkadian, um, and by the way, do you know why we call it Akkadian? No. Ah, well, um, there was this great king, Sargon, who I mentioned earlier, he was um, about 2350 BC. He was the most amazing... Uh, you know, he's called Sargon the Great, and his real name, that's the Greek version, his real name is Sharukin, which Sharu means king, and Sharukin means a real king, legitimate king, which obviously tells you that he wasn't a legitimate king, or that he wanted to make the point that he is a legitimate king, and so on. And he was sent down river in um, a basket, um, I want to say made of bulrushes, you know, it's like the Moses story, covered in pitch, and he was pulled out of the river as a tiny little baby and brought up by, um, by uh, well, he was pulled out by Aki, the water bearer, and he became a gardener, and later on was favoured by Ishtar, the goddess, and uh, became a great king. Um, and his capital city is Akade, and we've never discovered it. But that's w where the name Akkadian comes from. That's why we call it Akkadian. Okay. Sorry, I've lost my uh, sense of where I was there, talking about Akkadian and Sumerian. Um, but, uh, yes, so give me another question. No, that's it. fascinating. I think we've, uh, we've covered a huge amount of ground there. And, yes. Uh, so thank you, Mark. It's absolutely okay. fascinating. I mean, it still remains 
quite a, a dark age, I suppose, in terms of, that, of our knowledge there. But um, it is extraordinary, and I think people are simply not aware of just how well-known these languages are and this kind of scholarship is, is continuing. Well, of course, one says dark age, and, you know, that's a term that we in the West have used, particularly for after the Roman Empire collapsed in the West and before there was writing. It's a period where there, wasn't, where there weren't written documents. Mm, which we um, now refer to as fifth late century, and, uh, Fifth century, you know, in England, uh, sixth century as well. Um, and then we only get to, you know, time of Bede is much later. But um, this is not a dark age because there's all this written material and it is fantastic, wonderful literature, historical texts, religious texts, um, medical texts, all sorts of stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Well, hopefully um, yeah. this interview and your article will... Uh push people in that direction, we hope. Yes. But anyway, thank you, Mark. Thank you very, very much. much. That's fascinating. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.